Open your Bibles, if you would, please, today to Matthew chapter 5. And once you've found that, you might also want to find Ephesians chapter 5, because we'll be reading from there in just a moment. But Matthew chapter 5, and in today's message about the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to use verses 31 and 32 of this fifth chapter as a jumping-off point to do an excursus on marriage. Now, as you'll notice in a few moments as we read these verses again, that here Jesus is speaking on the subject of divorce. And we're going to get to divorce in two weeks. But before we do, I thought it would be good for us that we would discuss some things that will help us to keep our marriages out of trouble and keep them away from the divorce courts. Marriage is between two people. And I might add that according to God's holy word, that marriage is between a man and a woman. There is no other type of marriage. It's between a man and a woman. And if you can get those two people that are involved in the marriage to be what God says that they should be, if they will pattern their marriage after the principles that we find in God's Word, it will be a good marriage, it will be a God-honoring marriage, and it will be a successful marriage. Now, by what I've just said, it should be apparent to all of us that marriage, a good marriage, or a God-honoring marriage, is one between Christians. We're talking about a Christian marriage. We're speaking of people who have received Christ as their personal Savior, and they enter into a marriage relationship, and then they live by the Word of God. And so I can't promise anything about marriages that are unequally yoked. The promises that we find in God's Word are for God's people, and God intended in that very first marriage that the two people, the husband and the wife, would know him, they would honor him, and they would obey him. And so if you're not a Christian today, you, you miss the mark on the very first most important criteria. You cannot honor God in any meaningful way, with any meaningful sense or purpose, without knowing Jesus Christ as the Savior. You simply cannot bypass Jesus Christ and respect, expect that you're going to receive any kind of blessings from God other than what we might call the common grace that God gives to all. And so today, and in these next messages, I'll be dealing mainly with Christians, talking about Christian marriages. And I have to talk with Christians, or about Christians, because there are many Christian marriages that are in trouble too. Jesus' teachings on divorce open up this broader consideration of proper marriages. And if the perspective on marriage that we have is right, if we're doing what God expects in our marriages, then the question about whether it's okay for two people to be divorced becomes moot. So let's read what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, and then we're going to get into God's view of husbands. If you'd stand with me, please, as we look in God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, when we'll read verses number 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife... Let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to you once more today. We are indeed thankful that we are in your presence. We pray, Lord, that you would speak through the message today. Help us to understand what you expect from husbands in marriage. 
And Lord, we pray that our marriages might be God-honoring marriages. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Divorce is now the subject of Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. And one thing that we've surely learned as we've gone through this sermon is the very intensely practical nature of what Jesus says. The truths that Jesus expresses in this sermon are timeless in their relevancy. Now, we're in a portion of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is giving six different examples about how the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who were the prominent religious leaders of that time, had misinterpreted God's law. Now, they had long been teaching the letter of the law without really understanding the spirit of it. And they missed the most important part about how a person can have righteousness, or in other words, how he can be right with God. And Jesus is teaching in this portion the matter of internal righteousness, or that righteousness is a matter of the heart. And so Jesus started out with two examples that demonstrated that their hearts were wrong. He discussed murder and verses 21 through 26, and he said that murder is not just the physical act of taking another person's life, but he said that murder is an act of your heart, or it starts with your heart. And so if you have anger or malice, if you have hatred in your heart, then Jesus says that you are already guilty of this sin, you have committed murder. And then he spoke about adultery, and he said adultery is also a matter of your heart. It's not just a matter of whether you physically go out and cheat on your husband or your wife, but your heart, if you have lust in your heart, if you're holding those kinds of thoughts in your heart where you lust after another person, then he says that you have already committed that sin. And what he's speaking of is the spirit of the law and not just the letter. Now Jesus turns his attention to another pervasive problem among the Jews, and that is the problem of divorce. And the truth is, if they had the right kind of marriages, then they wouldn't have needed to be corrected on the matter of divorce. And so, we're going to put divorce on hold for just a couple of weeks. And I want to show you what God expects with the right kind of a marriage. Now, last week we talked about marriage in general. And this week I want to speak to you about how God views the husband. And next week we'll talk about how God views the wife. I know that some of you have already looked at the schedule. And we put that in the bulletin each week, and you've determined which of these two sermons that you would like to hear. And uh, the wives are always interested in what I have to say about the husbands, and the husbands are interested in what I have to say about the wives, and both sides are hoping that I straighten the other one out. So I, I don't know if we're going to do that. But I do expect that we will have some sore ribs today before we're through. Uh, God took the woman from the rib of the man, and our sides have been sore ever since. And you know what I'm speaking of. So what does the Bible say about the husband? Well, I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. And this is going to be more of a text for us than the book of Matthew for the next couple of weeks. Uh, get Ephesians, Ephesians there and stay right there because we're going to be here for a while. Uh, last week we used this portion of Scripture to get us started on the subject of marriage. And it does contain some very crucial information about husbands and wives. Now if you'll look at verse number 22 in this chapter, it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now all of you men say amen right there. 
All right, I wanted to get that out of the way because that's as good as it's going to get for you today. So skip down to verse number 25. 25 is where we're going to actually start this. It says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. I don't know that there's a person here who really understands the depth of the meaning of that statement. There's only one way that you could know what that means, and that is to be God. There's none of us that can actually fathom the depth of God's love for such undeserving sinners as we are. But here the scripture says that Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. Right here is one of those standards that you are going to struggle to reach. You're going to spend all of your life, if you're the proper kind of husband, trying to reach what that statement says... The scripture says that you are to love your wife even as Christ loved his church. And if you can get that one thought in your head, and you think on that thought, and you struggle towards reaching that standard, then I promise you, you're not going to have time to think about divorce. Now, this is one of those areas of righteousness, and marriage is really about righteousness. It's one of those areas that simply cannot be achieved unless you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. This does not work in the external. This is not about things that you can do externally. This is really a matter of your heart, just like all of these other things that we've talked about so far. Those first two examples were about murder and adultery, and those are issues of the heart. And in order for your marriage to be right, in order for you to have the right kind of marriage that God wants you to have, it is still a matter of your heart. Now, about two weeks ago, or two years ago, I should say, I preached from this passage in Ephesians, And I dealt with the issue of husbands and wives. So I went back and I looked at the attendance that we had on those Wednesday nights uh, where we were talking about this. And I think there were about 55 adults that were in attendance on those evenings. And so I'm going to go back to some of the very same things that I preached about then. And that's because what we're dealing with here are unchangeable principles. Now, I, I really can't teach you any differently about this than what I did then. So what we're going to talk about some of the same things. Marriage is based on love. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives. And so that's the command, and that's the context of how men are to treat their wives, which is in a loving relationship. And if our love is misunderstood, if we misunderstand what God is speaking of when he says, love your wives, if we misunderstand the meaning of it, then we're going to have problems in our marriages. So let's start with this today, the problematic mistakes of love. The problematic mistakes of love. Now, if you can look back at verse number 22, here is where the trouble actually begins. Many husbands look at verse number 22 And they really can't get past verse 22 to get to verse number 25. All that they see are these words, wives, submit. And so that's the only thing that's important in a marriage to them. They must have a submissive wife. Well, it's true. Paul begins with the wife in the passage. But the real concentration here is about the husband. Wives, submit yourselves to the husband. That's the statement. But the real operative in this, if you go ahead and read the entire passage, is that Paul is speaking about the husband and not the wife. And the comparison is, the husband is to the wife as Christ is to the church. But husbands read the statement, wives submit, and they never do get past that. And so, 
There are many Christian marriages that are really not much different than what you find in a Muslim country. Now, in those societies, a man can do whatever he wants with a woman. The woman is his doormat. He comes home from work and things that he doesn't like are going on, and so he takes it all out on his wife, and he wipes his feet on his wife. He can disregard his marriage vows. He can divorce her. And in those countries, he can even kill her if he suspects her of infidelity. And in some regards, that is exactly what Jesus faced with the Jewish society in his time. The husbands didn't love their wives, and they didn't treat them as God intended. And so for any case, they were putting their wives away and ending their marriages. And so husbands see that little phrase there, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, and they think that marriage is all bound up in those seven very simple words. Well, what are the mistakes as you look at verse number 22? Let me give you a couple of mistakes. The first one is that wives are not the servants of their husbands. Now, we make little jokes about that, like I did a moment ago about having sore ribs because of our wives. But we would do very well to look at the place where God took the woman. Now, someone said it long ago and said it wisely, that God did not take the woman from man's feet so that he could trample on her. And that God also did not take the woman from man's head so that she could be the rule over him. In Genesis chapter 2, a passage we read just a moment ago, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And so the woman came from man's side. And there really couldn't be anything that's more picturesque or more symbolic Nothing, I don't think, could really show us that the wife is to come alongside of her husband. She comes along beside of him as an equal. God called her a helpmeet, and that word actually means a counterpart. It it means an aid. It means someone to come along aside. Now, next week, we're going to talk about what biblical submission actually means, and you can trust me that the word does not mean that the wife is a doormat. And if the scribes and the Pharisees had clearly understood that particular teaching, and if they had been practicing those things correctly, there wouldn't have been so much trouble in their marriages, and Jesus would not have had to deal with the issue of divorce. Now, the second mistake that's made is that wives are not sex objects for husbands. And this is probably the biggest mistake about marriage today. A marriage is all about hormones. And people think, well, what marriage is about is about legalizing the sex urge. And so in this sensual, charged-up sexual society, the sex drive has become a primary motive for marriage. Well, deviant sexual practices are the result of looking at women in this way, looking at her in the wrong way. It's the source of pornography that's so pervasive in our world today. It's the reason why we have all those seedy sections of town where you might want not want to go. It's the reason why that there is prostitution. Every, just about every deviant sexual behavior comes out of this that man does not recognize that woman is not for that one purpose. Now, a few weeks ago, we called it the biological purpose. And whether it's a man or a woman that bases their marriage upon the biological purpose, it is a marriage that will not stand. 
Marriage is a union of the body. That is absolutely true. And we looked at that and we learned about that last week. But we ought not to forget this, that marriage is also about the soul and the spirit. And when we have a singular purpose in mind that we're talking about sex, then we cannot have a godly marriage. Now, the reality of it is that when you look at the biblical perspective of marriage, romantic feelings are not even a part of the Scripture. Now, I've explained this on several different occasions as we've talked about this in other subjects. But in the Greek language, there are three different words used for love. In the English language, we only have one word. That's love, L-O-V-E. And that love or that word stands for all different kinds of love. And so we say, well, I love football and I love apple pie and I love mom. I love you, man. Uh, I love you as in in a moment of heated passion. Or I love my wife, and all of that is the same word determined upon the con- determined by the context. Now, in the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, there are actually three words for love, but we only find two of them in the New Testament scriptures. One is the word philio, and that word means fondness. It's a word that they use to designate friendship. The other word is the word agape, and that is a word that means fully devoted love. But you know the one word that's missing from the New Testament vocabulary? It's the word eros, the Greek word eros, and that is where we get our English word erotic. And that means sensual, fleshly, lustful desire. It's the same word that we use when we're talking about romance. It's the word that we use when we're all hot and bothered, you might say, in a sexual situation. But that word is actually missing from the New Testament vocabulary. And so do you know what that means? It means that when we're talking about a God-honoring marriage, it can't be built upon that kind of love. It can't be built upon using the woman as a sex object. And so the love has to be much deeper. And in fact, the word that's used in Ephesians 5.25 is the word agape. And that is an unconditional type of love. It's love from the heart that's unconditionally devoted. Now, I'll speak about that in a little bit more in just a moment, and I'll explain to you that love is a choice that's patterned after Christ. But for now, we just need to realize the definitions of love, and we can't get these things mixed up. Because if we take eros, if we take that erotic type of love and make that the basis for marriage, then the husband or wife cannot love as the Bible commands. Now, for sure, we all know it, that romantic love is a part of a marriage, and you really can't do without that part in your marriage. Marriages that have no romance in them where the marriage partners are really not attracted to one another, are not very good marriages. But the sexual desires that we have in marriage must always be sanctified by this agape type of love. And you will never understand what I'm talking about when I speak of this agape love, the kind that Christ had for his church. You'll never understand that unless you are a Christian. So those are problematic mistakes of love. Now, secondly, I want to discuss the perfect manner of love. The perfect manner. Now, if I could digress for just a moment to the area of mistakes, one of the mistakes that people make is where they go when marriages are in trouble. Many Christians are found in the family section of Barnes & Noble looking for their solution amongst the piles of hundreds of church manuals that are written by so-called experts on marriage. 
But the first place, and I'm not necessarily saying those things are bad, I am telling you that the very first place you ought to go when there's a problem with your marriage is to go to the Word of God. Now, particularly, that is the responsibility of the husband. God has made the husband the spiritual leader of the home, and that means that a husband must be a a student of God's Word. Now, if you ignore God's Word and you don't teach your children and you don't teach your wife from the Bible, then you can't expect that she's going to be a spiritual person. If you don't have the spiritual fortitude to spend some time in God's Word, learning what God says, then you're going to have a difficult time trying to fix things when things go wrong. If a family is held together spiritually, it will be held together physically. And divorce is not one of the options when you've applied all of the spiritual tests. As we look at what Paul says in Ephesians 5 about marriage, where did Paul go? Well, Dr. Phil wasn't one of his options. And so what Paul did was to go straight to the example of Christ. And what did he say? He said, here is the way that you love. You love in the same way that Christ loved his church. Well, we have to explore that a little bit. What is that love? What kind of love is he speaking of? Well, you are to love your wife first with a sacrificing love. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, now Christ's love was shown by sacrificing himself. So what is the right kind of love in a marriage? I think there are many husbands who think that the scratch-your-back method, that's the right kind of love that you have in a marriage. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. In other words, I'll, I'll love you for what I can get out of you. If you treat me right, then I'll treat you right. And so after a time, husbands will begin to say things like, well, I don't love her anymore. And you follow that up with a few questions, and it usually comes down to this. I'm not getting my just due in this marriage. I'm not getting everything that I think that I deserve. I expect more. I want my wife to meet all of my needs. Now, wait just a minute. You can go to Barnes & Noble, and I'm sure that they're going to have an explanation or some kind of way that you can figure out of that, but I promise you it's not going to be the right way because the issue is here, what does God's Word say? And the issue is, how did Christ love the church? Did he love the church because we loved him first? And the answer to the question is no. Did he love us no matter... What, he, what we did to him, certainly he did. Didn't he love us when we hated him? That's what the Bible says. You think about it. What did we ever do for Christ? What was it that was in us that, that caused Christ to choose us, to love us and make us his own? Was it based upon how we had treated him? Certainly not. Christ decided to love us unconditionally. In Romans chapter 8, verse number or 5, rather, verse number 8, it says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sacrificial love is one that considers the other person's needs before it considers its own. And so if you take an attitude towards your wife where you will consider her needs before your own, consider her needs first, if you love her sacrificially, then she'll return that kind of love and she'll take care of you. Now, here's the thing. You don't, you, don't, you don't do anything else and you don't ask for anything from her first. You do what you're supposed to do first. You love her as God says to love her. Give her what she needs. And then God gives back what you need. Secondly, you are to love her with a purifying love. Look at verse number 26 in Ephesians 5. 
that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Christ purifies his church by cleansing it with the word. Now, my subject today, of course, is the husband. And I'm not really talking about what the word of God does. But there's really no way that you can understand how these two things go together unless you know what kind of effect that the Bible has on you. Reading and studying the Bible, learning of the Word of God, purifies your life from sin. Where is it that you learn what to do? I mean, how do you know how to please God? How, how do you know what God really expects from you? David said, through thy precepts, I get understanding. And he said, through the Word, I know how to identify false ways. Well, how does that apply to a marriage relationship? How is a husband's love a purifying love? Well, here's the goal that should be right up front for every husband, and that is to make your wife a better Christian. Do everything in your power to make her a better Christian. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, there's a very interesting little thing that God, that Adam said, rather, when God presented him with Eve. God took Eve out of Adam's side, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Look down at verse number 31 in Ephesians 5. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Paul is following up Adam's statement. He's also following up Jesus' reiteration of the very same theme in Matthew chapter 19. So how is it that you make your wife a better Christian. She's flesh of your flesh. She's bone of your bone. And so you make her a better Christian by improving your spirituality. You become a stronger Christian and you become a godly man and your wife will become a better Christian. Now, if she's not a spiritual person, who do you blame? Where do you go first to look for it? Well, you start looking at yourself because you are responsible, men, to be a man after God's own heart. And if you are not a man after God's own heart, then you needn't expect that your wife is going to be a woman after God's heart. It starts with you. And God puts the onus on you first. He said, this is your responsibility. You must be a man of the Word of God. And so there's some things that you have to do. You have to look at her spiritual life. And then along the way, you have to protect her from defilement. You need to watch what your wife does. And I don't mean that you watch her as a spy and you don't watch her in an untrustworthy manner, but you need to know enough to be able to correct her ways, and you need to know the Scriptures well enough that it corrects your ways so you'll know how to tell her to do what's right. And you can't do that unless you are a man who is a man of the Word of God. You have to know Scripture. Now, the third thing that you have to do is that you love her with a caring love. Now, notice verses 28 and 29. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Now there, this biblical uh, principle is repeated over and over again. And we keep seeing this throughout the Scripture. Your wife is your body. Your wife is your body. Your wife is your body. And so you treat your wife just like you do your body. You don't harm your body. You don't starve your body. You don't neglect your body. You take care of it. And Paul says that you are to love your wife even as you do your own body. Now, she needs support. 
She needs physical things like food and shelter, of course. And as a husband, it's your responsibility to provide the food and the shelter. But there's also an equally important factor here, and that is the wife needs emotional support. The very worst thing that you can do is to ignore your wife's emotional needs. The Bible calls her the weaker vessel. And that does not mean that she's weaker mentally. And it's really not even talking about her being weaker physically, even though it is usually true that men are usually stronger physically than women, with some exceptions, of course. If you watch wrestling, women's wrestling on TV and things like that, and I think there was a show called The Gladiators or whatever, and and, uh, if you ladies want to do that to yourself, have at it. You you might want to drop the description lady from it. But, But here, the wife is the weaker vessel. That's what the Word of God says. And the real intention there is to describe her emotionally. Men and women are simply different emotionally. And that's why... A woman needs a box of tissues to watch Bambi. Uh, We don't need that, men. I mean, men, you go out there and you shoot the deer and you gut it and you skin it and you hang its head on the wall and then you eat it. Doesn't bother you at all. But women, what's their problem? Well, you know, they're thinking about all the little deer that don't have mommies any longer and that's why they cry. It's just a different thing. And you know, it's also different when you get sick. You know, men... We get sick and we have to have our back rubbed. We've got to get into the bed. And there's no way that you could, you know, you can't do anything. We get up and go to the bathroom. And your wife gets sick and she's got to wash the clothes and she's got to give the dog a bath and fix the supper and clean the house. I know all about that because that's the way it operates at our house. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. You see, you are to care for her. And if you act like you care for her, then you don't get burned toast and you don't get a rolling pin upside the head. It's even as Christ loved the church. That's the standard. And so you have to consider the sacrificing, purifying, caring love of Christ. It has to be right. And if you love like that, then you're not going to be arguing over things like submissiveness and whether you're getting your needs met. Now, very quickly, then, I want to look at the third area. This is the proper motive for love. What is it that drives your love? Well, there are things that attract a man to a woman and vice versa. You don't get married unless you see an attraction in the other person. And, and we'd be crazy to think, and we know, we just don't decide to get married and go pair up with somebody. Um, we, we see certain characteristics in people, and that's why we choose them. In other countries, they may, and as you know, they, they have arranged marriages. And for our way of thinking, we just can't figure out how that works. We don't know how it's going to work. It's way off base the way that we think. But how do they make those kinds of marriages work? And I think that we do well to explore that just a little bit and learn that real love does develop in those types of marriages. And it can't be because they went into marriage for the very same reasons that we did. The Scripture says to love as Christ loved. So that's your first motive. First, love is patterned after Christ. And really, that's what we've been talking about all along, that sacrificing, purifying, caring love. That is the pattern that Christ set for us. But there's something else that we need to see here, and that is that the love that Christ had for us was determined before any of us was ever born. We'd never done anything good. There were no predetermined factors that caused Christ to choose us. Christ couldn't have desired us for any of that because we weren't even born. There wasn't anything in us. Now, we're different than that, and we know it. We make our decisions based on what we see. 
And so a man may be drawn to a woman because of her physical beauty, the outward attraction. Some men are a little bit more substantial than that, and they look for the woman's personality. And some are very much less substantial, and they say, well, she's got money, or dad's got money, and that's good enough for me. And so they choose on those bases. But if those are the qualifying reasons for love, then there's going to be a troubled marriage. God does not say, love your wife as long as she's got the body of a 20-year-old. And he doesn't say, love her as long as she doesn't have all those mood swings. Why do you love her? Here's your primary number one reason. You might want to make a note of it. Why do you love her? Because it's God's will for you to love her. It's what God says. You stick in a marriage and you stay in a marriage because it's God's word. And it's God's will. Now, you have people that are all the time talking about falling in and out of love. As I've told you before, you fall out of trees. You don't fall out of love. It's God's will. You make a choice to love that person exactly like Christ made his choice to love us. And he never stops loving us because he chose to love us eternally. And that's what God expects in your marriage. Christ made a choice, and you need to make a choice to follow God's will and to love your wife unconditionally. Now, lastly, when we think about the choice and the proper motives, love is particular in choice. There's a very clear point of doctrine that's found in Ephesians 5.25. In fact, Paul started out this little letter to the Ephesians with this statement of doctrine. The Scripture says, We are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Go back to chapter 1, and you can find it there. And here in chapter 5, there is a follow-up statement. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That tells us that Christ was very particular about his choice. The love that we're speaking of here is reserved for his church only. That's who he chose, and that's who he gave his life for. Now, that tells us that this love is reserved for one of a kind. The church is the bride of Christ, and Christ does not have a wandering eye. And so that means for husbands that your love for your wife is for her and her only. She's the one and the only to you. And so your love is to be a fully devoted love to her. It can't be shared with anyone else. It can't be shared with people at work. It can't be shared with the secretaries. It can't be shared with a clerk at the store and things like that. This love is for her and for her alone. She is bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh, and you have no business looking and lusting after things that you shouldn't have and things that you can't have. It's God's will, I said, for you to love her. You remember what... Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, he said, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in her heart. And do you know what that means, men? It means that when you have lust in your heart, you have already broken your marriage vow. You've already broken your marriage vow. Now, this kind of love that Christ had was a fully devoted love only to one bride. It was very particular in its choice. And if you love your wife and you love her alone as Christ did his church, you will have a less lasting and a blessed marriage. Now, I don't want to end the sermon today without bringing this whole thing back to the overall context, the overall overarching principles that Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching that you cannot be right with God without having a right heart. The heart is the issue. Your marriage can't be right unless your heart 
is right. And your attitude about your wife can't be right unless your heart is right. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The question is, is your heart right? Are you really trusting Jesus to save you from your sins? Now, men, do you want a blessed marriage? You want the kind of marriage that's God-honoring? Well, the first thing you have to do is to consider your heart. Is your heart right with God? Now, God's view of marriage, of course, as I said in the very beginning, is that both people would be Christians. These are two people who have been washed in the blood of the precious Savior. A right marriage always starts with the right heart. And so if your heart is right and you concentrate on that, if you have the love for Christ that you ought to have, if you love him supremely with all of your heart, like the Word of God says, then I promise you, your marriage will last. If you love God with all of your heart, it takes care of all the other issues that you have in your life. Now, you may think that there's other things to explore, that there are other directions to go, and it's a very complicated thing about how you straighten things out. But the Word of God always brings it right back to this very central issue is what is going on in your heart. And if your heart is right, fully devoted to God, then you'll have success in your marriage. Love as Christ loved. Husbands, love your wife even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we learn in your blessed word. Lord, we see so many marriages today that are in trouble, and I believe that we can lay the blame at the feet of men who don't love you as they should. We don't love our wives as we should because we're not fully dedicated to you. Lord, I pray that you might speak to husbands today and help us to understand that we are to love you with all of our soul, with all of our might, with all of our strength. And when we learn to love you properly, then we can begin to obey this command to love as Christ loved his church, to love our wives as he loved the church. Lord, I just pray that you would help our marriages. And then if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, may they understand that the place to get this started, the place to start making corrections is to come to you in faith, trusting you to save them from their sins. Bless as we sing today. Bless these people who've heard the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.